Hello and welcome to Vital Views podcast for UNLV School of Nursing. I'm Joe Gascioni, Communications Director for the School of Nursing. There is no easy solution to the topic of gun violence, and it feels at times there's no easy way to talk about it. With each mass shooting or firearm injury, there's shock, outrage, sadness, and a call to action to prevent future shootings. With the increase of violence around the U.S. and greater publicity of these incidents, these calls to change something grow louder and louder. But it's also important to understand the context of gun violence, not just in political arenas or legal rights, but in the realm of an ongoing health crisis. Here to discuss gun violence as a public health emergency and how nursing can play a role in mitigating it is Angela Amar, Dean and Professor at UNLV School of Nursing. Dean Amar, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. And I want to preface this, too, for those of you out there. This is not going to be a conversation about self-defense, about Second Amendment rights. We're not going to get into those realms. This is strictly, objectively health-related. And on that topic, is it fair to call gun violence a public health crisis? Absolutely. Public health is concerned with promoting health, with preventing death, and enhancing life. And if we, we think about gun violence, it is a threat to someone's life. Um, And it's also predictable. And if you can predict something, you can prevent something. Now, your expertise includes uh, trauma-informed care, dating violence, survivors of violence and trauma. How common was gun violence in your research? Gun violence, I mean, I think the most common thing that that you see is suicide. And when you think about domestic violence, often you hear the murder-suicide. So the person who kills the spouse and then kills themselves. Um, It's a very lethal form of death. And so we don't always um, hear about the suicides as much, but certainly we hear about in domestic violence, the most common cause of death would be gun violence. And we talk about gun violence. It is not just mass shootings. We talk about suicides. There's intentionally self-inflicted, like we just mentioned, unintentional legal interventions. And I'm just going through some fast facts from the CDC. When we look at motivations behind gun violence, uh, specifically we're talking about mass shootings in this case, it's common to argue that don't look at the gun, look at the person behind it, like they might not be there mentally, uh, to put it bluntly. Where do you draw the line on that distinction? Mental health is important. I mean, our country has sort of stripped a lot of the services, a lot of the resources that could be available to prevent mental illness. And we can find the relationship. One thing that's interesting, though, to note is that persons with mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. And so that's a huge misnomer because not that everyone who has mental illness is violent. What we do know about violence, though, in any form is that there are predictable upstream sort of factors that we could look at. So being exposed to violence is a huge predictor. Past experiences of violence, whether as victim or perpetrator, huge predictor of violence. Violence to animals, huge predictor of future violence. They're all these fa- and so if we know all these factors that occur that can lead to violence, our emphasis really should be on preventing these upstream factors that are part of this so that we don't have to get to this end result of gun trauma. And that leads into my next question. As a nurse, as a healthcare expert, what do you propose for preventative measures? I mean, I think a lot of the the factors, like we're not talking anti-Second Amendment rights. We're talking about, if you think about what happens health-wise. So someone who gets, um, who has those um, automatic assault rifles that can unload hundreds of bullets in one sitting. So we have the child who couldn't be recognized except for her shoes because her body's so torn apart. When you see people who make it to the ED who've experienced violence in this way, 
the wounds are catastrophic. The wounds are big. If someone survives, they're surviving with major um, problems. So having at least some limits and who can get those, who has access to, helps then in the long run to not have the major trauma. I, I mean, I think that there's got to be some responsible policies that sort of, if we think about the shooting in Illinois, there were predictable things that been called to the cops, the cops, excuse me, been called to the home. So we knew that there was some trauma, some areas there. The fact that he was able to get that much weapons is a problem. And so I think we do have to look at considering the upstream factors that contribute to violence and how do we, in a responsible way, because we're not just talking about eliminating rights, but we're also thinking about the rights of the people who get shot innocently at a parade and how do we protect them? And so where do we kind of draw a balance and think about ways that cause the least harm and most benefit. And we talked about mental health before. It's not just the act itself, but the long-term effects, not just the physical, but the mental are so important too. looking at more resources for post-traumatic stress. We talked about, survivors. we mentioned survivors before, victims, just to be able to go on with life, not necessarily forgetting what happened, but just try to, to manage those feelings. Trauma is a hard thing. I, when people experience some kind of violence, I often say, you know, it's a major assault on the body and the body reacts in multiple ways. And they're not always just physical. Although a lot of times we physical manifestations of stress are common. So all the headache, backache, stomachache, all those things have a stress-related component. So when someone experiences a major traumatic event, it often intrudes on their activities of daily living. They re-see things, sounds trigger them, events trigger them, anniversary dates, memory. I mean, there's all kinds of things that trigger. And when you look at it, we talk sometimes in healthcare about, we can call it a thick chart syndrome of people who've experienced violence and trauma, and they end up in healthcare seeking all kinds of complaints. And usually there are, there's some strep pain, all kinds of things. Um, and when you get to the bottom of it, if we could deal with the psychological effects of the trauma they've experienced, all of that rest of the stuff becomes a different thing to deal with. I remember the night of 1 October. I wasn't there at the at the Harvest Festival, but I was working in, in TV news. And at that moment, I was not in the station. We got called in, you know, everyone, all hands on deck situation. But I remember hearing sirens that night. And we lived in Henderson. So we were a good 20, 25 minutes away. And even though I didn't see where they were going, I know where they were going. And to this day, I still hear sirens. And I just, my mind goes to that moment. Weeks later, Metro Police releases body cam video of officers responding to the scene. And we were never going to air these clips because it would be too traumatic. We felt it would be too traumatic for the viewers because it just hits too close to home. But hearing the gunfire, Mm -hmm. that's something that I'll never forget. Exactly. And the person who was hurt by it feels it even even at a greater depth right. because it really affected them. Everybody responds differently. So there's no one pattern. There's no one way people respond. different. Some people, people always look for a classic victim and some people do laugh. Some people are serious. Some people cry. Some people scream. Some people do all kinds of things because we're all individual. We're all unique. The key factor is that it infects everyone in some way and nothing can just sit inside you it comes out and so we see it manifested in a variety of things that are also then if we deal with those things we can help and in the persons who are perpetrators if we deal with their upstream sort of factors that predict violence 
we can certainly decrease what we see. What about on the other end of the spectrum? I imagine at any given day, week, month, frontline nurses see multiple gunshot wound victims. They know how to treat the the, the wounds, but I wonder, mm-hmm. does it become a situation where they treat so many, it becomes so second nature that they almost become desensitized to it, to the violence? Freud gave us a lot of defense mechanisms that people use. And one common one is it's sort of compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes real easy. You just um, had a baby. Your child vomits. Your child has messy diarrhea. You don't really think about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You just, you pick up your child out of the the vomit. You wipe up the vomit. You clean the bed. You do all the stuff. After you may say, oh my God, that was horrible. It was nasty. I can't believe I did that. And so I think it's the same thing when you're at the hospital, that it's a, a person comes in, there's this problem, you know that it's a high stress situation and you dig in and you treat the wounds, you treat the injuries, you attend to the family, you do all the things you have to do. Um, You step back from it and collapse almost because it's very anxiety producing intense. But our body has that, our physical, mental body has that ability to sort of compartmentalize. The problem becomes you do it too many times. And if it becomes a part of what you do, then people aren't dealing with their feelings. They aren't addressing them. And then we see all the other problems that can result all the way up to suicide, drug use among health professionals, because you need a way to manage those feelings. But it is a part of people kind of as you do when your kid's sick, Mm. not to minimize, but it is kind of similar that you just deal with the problem and you dig in and kind of collapse and take care of yourself later. And I feel it's, it is a necessary evil for healthcare professionals, law enforcement, military. You have to, to an extent, you have to power through because you have to get the job done. It's, it's just, it's part of it for better and for worse. But I think sometimes from an outside perspective, we hear so much about shootings that we dangerously get close to feeling like, well, here's another one. I guess it's never going to end. I guess we just have to accept it. And that's that's the desensitizing that I'm, I'm concerned about. Well, and I think at a societal level, because I, I felt that about Sandy Hook, the mm-hmm. fact that you would just think that somebody would walk into an elementary school with an assault rifle and gun down dozens of children. And you would have just thought, of course our country has to say this can't go on. We said this can't go on, and we did all the thoughts and prayers, Mm -hmm. but the policy and the change and the regulation, look at, was it Sweden that had that mass shooting at a camp, and they banned the assault rifles immediately. And so we had, or when people say the one guy with the bomb in his shoe, and we all take off our shoes at TSA now. And so there wasn't that kind of response. Um, Luckily, what's happened recently in Texas, we're seeing more response. But there is that danger of us just kind of taking for granted um, that kids are going to have mass shooter drills and practice hiding under desk. And then we're all going to think that when we go to a movie or a Fourth of July parade or wherever, that that possibility exists. And that is, I think, the desensitization that's not as good for us. That's why it's important to have these conversations so it, there's more context behind it, that it's not just it doesn't have to be this way, but there there are layers to it. Now, you recently presented along with other researchers at a webinar on gun violence through the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. Can you share some of the ideas that were discussed there? I think that it's interesting to think about people using their research. So one of our presenters, Jackie Campbell, she'll be coming here in October. She um, has a tool called the Danger Assessment, and you it's for 
women who are in abusive relationships and it can help predict the likelihood that they'll be killed by their partner and the higher their score, the higher the likelihood. Discussing that with with um, women or men who are in abusive relationships can be helpful because when you see the risk, when you see the, all these factors that contribute to that, it can make people decide to make change. Um, in her career, being part of the having marital rape become a law in every against the law in every state, being part of the Violence Against Women Act, which has been renewed several times now, but we can see the power of using your research to say, look what is happening, look, you know, what does this look like? We told a story there about a woman who was killed coming into the court for a court appearance and the, the husband, spouse, partner knew she would be there, so he shot her. So now they've made it where all the people, who women who come to court, park under the um, courthouse where the judges park, so they're safer. Terry Richmond does research on gun violence. She's an ED critical care nurse. She sees the effects of the wounds. So she's saying, I see what happens when you can't repair people from the damage. And so let's look at how we have safer laws that protect people's health. So if people are going to get shot, at least it's not these wounds that are debilitating and really change quality of life. Sarah Huzon does a lot of policy work. And so a lot of this happens at the state level too, in terms of thinking about how we think about the laws. New York just had the concealed carry law that um, was overturned. And so, and then the other piece of policy is thinking about since we know that violence is predictable, if something is predictable, it's preventable. So how do we determine who's at risk earlier? How do we look at different programming? How do we look at things that sort of build people up and that treat mental illness as it occurs versus making it a choice for people to get. And I'm not saying I'm anti-choice for mental illness, but at some point people need help. And if you're already in a non-well mental place, it's hard to make good decisions about your health care at that point or medicines. So making health, mental health care more available, child support programs, um, looking at preventing child abuse in early ages because future, past violence, future violence. So it's all those things of how do we as a society think differently about ensuring that everybody gets to develop with full agency and develop to be well-rounded citizens that aren't just resorting to violence. Well, Dean Amar, that's all I have. Thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. Obviously, big issue. We're not going to solve the world's problems in one sitting, but at least this information can benefit other people out there. So thank you again. Thank you, Joe. Everyone out there, thanks for listening. Have a great day.